Keith here, inviting you to imagine that Live from the Lounge is actually live and that you're with us in person. You got a drink in your hand, you're swaying to the music, laughing a little. And we come to that moment in the show where we pass around a hat and ask you to share with us as we've shared with you. How much do you imagine you'd put in that hat? Ten bucks, twenty, a hundred? If you like what you hear, consider dropping a little something into our virtual hat at livefromtheloungepodcast.com. That's livefromtheloungepodcast.com. The donate button's right there at the top of the landing page. It's quick, it's easy, and it's greatly appreciated. Hey there. Welcome to the lounge. I just put some apples in the crock pot, and they're getting saucier by the minute, spreading their cinnamon-tinged aroma throughout the house. And in their honor, I heated up a cup of apple cider. You know what? I'm ready to lounge with you for the next hour or so. We've got stories, songs, and conversations all intuitively designed to help you groove with the rhythms of the season. In just a minute, we'll share a unique Thanksgiving table with the lounge players. John Ballinger and Ruby Farley will sing about finding home in the arms of your loved ones. I'll talk with the host of Combat Radio, Ethan Dettenmeyer, about how his life was changed by an impossible request from his daughter, Double Batch Daddy are here to share a song about leaving fear behind and moving forward with Chosen Family. Dinner in a Movie features a timeless comedy about the challenges of getting home in time for supper, and we'll pair that with an idea for your Thanksgiving breakfast. And later on, we'll ponder the gifts and the challenges in this season of going home and giving thanks. So, here we are. The end of the first season of Live from the Lounge. We'll spend some time a little later looking back at what we've tried to accomplish this past year. But for now, let's just say that sunrise in Los Angeles came at 6.18 this morning, thanks to the fact that we set our clocks back an hour last night, and the sunset rushes in at 4.54 this afternoon. The year is winding down, my friends. The leaves are falling from the trees. Rain and snow are in the forecast. It's time to come indoors for a while. Maybe light a fire, throw another blanket on the bed. It's time to come home, look back, and give thanks. I'll be honest, Thanksgiving is my favorite holiday. I love that it's relatively untouched by rampant consumerism the way Halloween, Christmas, and Valentine's Day are. I love the preparation of the food, the smells that come from the kitchen as it heats its way through the turkey, the casseroles, and the pies. Breaking out the good plates that sat on my grandparents' table, the ones that I ate off as a child. Lighting the candles, rushing to remember how to make gravy. The feast itself, with the comments on how this year's green beans stacked up to great-grandmas back in the day. The teasing, the toasts, the littlest ones whose heads barely clear the tabletop. And the ones who once were small, now holding forth on the issues of the day with a perspective that still feels familiar, despite the years that have passed since we were in our early 20s. The addition over the years of a rotating collection of beloved friends to our table. The catching up. The celebration of accomplishments and the remembering of those who are no longer with us. Mostly, though, if you strip Thanksgiving of the turkey and the china and the candles and the pie, it's really just the simple ritual of taking a moment to stop everything for a few days in order to give thanks for what we've been given. That's what I love the most about this time of year. As we move through the podcast this month, I hope you'll indulge me as I celebrate with gratitude the folks who've been kind enough to collaborate with me for the last year. Matt and Carol Almos wrote 11 of our 12 radio shows. Anne and I approached them just about a year ago with this crazy idea about producing a variety show podcast once a month, and that we'd like them to spearhead the writing of a 10-minute radio play for each episode. We sat outside in the cold, warmed by a few bottles of red wine and fire logs made of coffee grounds. 
I basically told them that the show would follow the seasons of the year, but that they were free to interpret that in any way they liked. The mix of the thoughtful reflection of the thin boy and the ocean with the hysterical modern fables of the unloved man and the man with boring dreams alongside the unsettling and ultimately heartwarming Mother's Day sketch are a testament to the smarts, the snark, and the deep caring that this power couple bring to the lounge. I'm grateful for Matt's commitment to story, his encouraging and thoughtful approach to collaboration, and his passionate advocacy to protect our environment. Carol is the snarky skeptic with a twinkle in her eye. Her laugh is the reason folks try to be funny, and our laughter is a great gift that she generously shares. I'm also grateful for the work that she does for our furry friends as an advocate and administrator with the Los Angeles Department of Animal Services. Here's their latest offering, in which we join a Friendsgiving meal already in progress. Stop. This is so good. That was delicious. Here, here. Best rib roast ever. Thank you. I just Googled a bunch of different recipes. This one was strangely precise. Well, it worked. This is... This is really nice. It is. I mean, last year we were all separated from each other, but now we're together. We can break bread together and talk and hug. And I I just want to say that I'm really thankful for that. I love everyone sitting here at this table. We love you too, Tracy. Oh, we love you. We love you, Tracy. Well, if we're talking about what we're thankful for... I mean, I agree fully with Tracy, but I will add that I'm grateful for this food. And not just because I cooked most of it. (laughs) We're just very fortunate. Yes, we are. Well, I'll state the obvious after the year and a half we've been through and say that I'm thankful for my health. For our health. Yes. That's a good one. What about you, Brendan? Yes, Brendan, you've been very quiet. You've just been sitting there for the last hour, staring quietly into space. Yes. Tell us, Brendan, what are you thankful for? Huh, that's a great question. These past 18 months have been a deeply introspective time for me. Our world has been turned upside down, and I've been reflecting about what matters most in my life. I would love to share those reflections with you. Before I do, could you do me a favor? Sure. Could you plug this in for me? Uh, um, yeah, no problem. Thank you. The Learning Channel was founded in 1980. It quickly achieved the fastest rate of growth of all basic cable programming services. The channel mostly featured documentary content pertaining to science, history, current events, medicine, technology, cooking, home improvement, and other information-based topics. In 1992, the network's name was shortened to TLC. Perhaps due to poor ratings, starting the late 1990s, TLC explored new avenues, de-emphasizing educational content in favor of reality drama and interior design shows. Some of their biggest hits were shows like Trading Spaces, Junkyard Wars, John and Kate Plus H, Toddlers and Tiaras, and Here Comes Honey Boo Boo. Ah, God. Toddlers and Tiaras. The worst. John and Kate Plus H? You're garbage. Who watches this Disgusting. Excuse me. I'm not finished. Sorry. In 2014, TLC debuted a new show, which currently scores higher ratings than almost any other basic cable program. It's about two people who are falling in love, trying their best to make it work. It's a girl from some country very far away, with a guy who is a colossal jerk. It's a romance where they barely know each other, but she still travels to his distant town. And they can't really speak each other's languages And you can't help wondering How's it all gonna go down When they only have 90 days To make their wedding happen They only have 90 days To make up, break up, fight and disagree They only have 90 days To learn the stark reality Of each other's finances 
to be. What are you talking about? Brendan, are you okay? Do you need a glass of water? I think I know. There's a show on TLC called 90 Day Fiance. Joy Lynn and Deborah told me about it. Oh, Joy man. Joy Lynn and Deborah. <laughs> of course. Anyway, it's about Americans who get engaged to people from other countries, and then they apply for what's called a K-1 visa, which allows the fiancé to enter the U.S. If they don't get married within 90 days, however, the fiancé has to return to their country. Wait. Did you watch it? I watched 10 minutes and just couldn't take it. I don't care if you think it's garbage. I don't care if you think it's trite. I'll keep watching the slow motion train wreck they make of their lives if it takes all night. Every episode, all eight seasons, 16 spin-offs, I have seen them all. Cause it makes me feel better about myself. Yeah, it makes me feel better about myself. Oh, it makes me feel better about myself and makes my problems all feel pretty small. Compared to a 58-year-old piano rental company entrepreneur and his lady from the Philippines. It's so awkward when his daughter's in her 20s and his fiance is only 19. Or a single mom from Bradenton, Florida, out of breath on a sand dune in Morocco. Her fiance's helpful advice is, hey babe, maybe more CrossFit and a little less taco. Or a dude who makes a living selling weed in SoCal with a woman from Ukraine or maybe Belarus. And she keys the word idiot into the door of his Mercedes so she might have a screw or two loose. Or the young guy from Tunisia who moves to Ohio and discovers things are just a bit odd. Where his fiancée is a middle-aged mother of four She writes a lot of bad checks and commits a lot of credit card fraud And they only have 90 days to make their wedding happen They only have 90 days to make up, break up, fight and disagree 90 days to discover that their fiancée is already married to be. So what I'm understanding, Brendan, is that the thing you are most thankful for in your life right now is the reality show 90 Day Fiance, which is broadcast on the TLC network. Yes, that's correct. Wow. I don't know, Brendan. I mean, why? Perhaps I'm just shallow, finding joy in the misfortune of these would-be husbands and wives. Perhaps I am warming my cold, lonely hands at the dumpster fire they've made of their lives. Perhaps I watch too much TV. Actually, not perhaps, I'm pretty certain. But Matthew made a good point earlier. It's been 18 months of despair and hurting. So I'm thankful for Larissa and Colty, Danielle and Muhammad, George and Anfisa. For letting the world cheer them on as they try to make good on the K-1 visa. And you might be surprised to discover that most of these couples have come through okay. They overcame obstacles, the doubt of their friends and families. And they got married and stayed married to this day. Wow, is that true? Uh-huh. And you know what? They did it in 90 days. They made their wedding happen. Details filmed for cable TV They did it in 90 days And then they each made a fortune On social media They have just 90 days To make sure that their love Was meant to be Alright Thanks for sharing, Brendan Cheers, everyone. Happy Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving. Are any of you watching Squid Game? 90 Days was written by Matt and Carol Almas, with music by Brendan Milburn, who also arranged and performed the tune. L.A. Animal Services is more than a place to find your next pet. With six locations throughout the city of Los Angeles, L.A. Animal Services also offers support services for pet families, like the Pet Food Pantry and monthly advice panels for dog, cat, and rabbit guardians. 
Another thing LA Animal Services offers is a chance for animal lovers to make a difference by getting involved. You can have a positive impact on animals in our community by adopting or by joining the team as a foster parent or a volunteer. Find information on how to access services and how to get involved at LAAnimalServices.com. Ethan Dettenmeyer is an imposing figure. He stands about six foot four and weighs in at a muscular 360 pounds. But in addition to being a true badass, Ethan is one of the kindest and most generous people I know. I'm proud to have been a guest on his internet radio show, Combat Radio, and to have worked alongside him to help raise money to feed those in need with style and grace. I can't think of someone who embraces the spirit of the season of Thanksgiving better than this man and his family. Here's his story. I am so glad you agreed to be with me today because you are one of my favorite people to talk to. I am so curious about your journey from high-powered media executive to the keeper of the Christmas flame for so many underprivileged youth and their families. I want to thank you for actually including me in this podcast because it's an honor to be here for two reasons. One, because I love you, Keith Farley. You're a hero to us. And two, because my probation officer insisted I do more community service work like this. Yeah. As far as charity goes with us, or, you know, it's it's no secret. I was at Warner Brothers in the feature development game and worked as a script doctor for a while. But really, my family is actually what got me motivated for charity work. I joined the courier service, which is essentially an extension of the mailroom. I did it after being a purchasing agent at the House of Blues on Sunset, where I was quickly wrecking my life in Jim Morrison fashion. And then one day I thought I'd take a year off and just clear my head. And a friend of mine called me about a month into that when I was starting to go insane with all the time on my hands. And he said, hey, got a gig over at Warner Brothers in transportation. And I go, oh, that sounds cool, man. I'll be like driving forklifts and stuff. And I thought it'd be really cool. Well, I went over there and what it was was the courier service because they drive golf carts. They come under the shield of transportation. But I loved it. I was outside. I was making a whopping $7.21 an hour. And I worked there for about an hour, a year, year, year and a half. But I made it my business after punching out each day once I got comfortable to kind of drop by all the prime executives office, even though I was off the clock. And just ask if they need anything or if there's anything I can do. And what I was essentially doing was showing my face. And one of those guys was director John Milius, who had done Red Dawn, Conan the Barbarian. He wrote Apocalypse Now. And he was the first guy to kind of pull me out of the mailroom and kind of give me some feature development perspective. And that's the trick. Do your job. Probably better than I did mine, honestly. But also get engaged and get out there and, and try to be of service because people like people they can depend on. And if they sense that about you, you'll probably get a kick up quick. After these years in um, feature film yeah. development at Warner Brothers, you've transitioned into combat radio. Um, tell us a little bit about how that transition came about. Well, as a joke, actually, in 2009, a friend of mine goes, hey, I just started an internet radio show. And we were like, what the fuck? What's that? And he goes, well, it's a show that goes out on the Internet. He knew I knew Sonny Landon, who played Billy the Indian in Predator. And I use the term Billy the Indian because that's how Sonny called his character. Sonny Landon always referred to himself as Billy the Indian. My friend says, we'd like to interview him. Can you can you get him for us? And we've also heard he's crazy and dangerous. So can you come with in case he gets out of control? But we went down there and the guy that conducted the interview was kind of pulverized by talking to him. So I just took over the interview. So there was no dead air. And afterwards, the owner of the station goes, hey, you know, you guys are really good. You should consider doing a show here. I had a charity thanks to a friend coming back from Iraq who was badly burned and couldn't get a job. I had kind of a you know, charity from my the mixed martial arts side of my life. And I thought I might be able to do something with a show on the radio. Uh, I might be able to help some people. So I got going like that. And that's the reason it's called combat radio because of the combat arts. We were all in when we did it, even though it draws from entertainment guests such as yourself, because that's actually where I was working. You and I worked together. You reached out to me uh, a couple of years ago to uh, direct um, 
this amazing group of voiceover actors, including Yuri Lowenthal and Tara Platt, Fred Tatashore, Roger Craig Smith. So this was a fundraising event for Combat Radio's Christmas for Social Services. Take me through the, the inspiration for that, how it came about that you do this big event every year, two big events, one that raises the funds in order to provide Christmas for people who wouldn't normally have it. Briefly, you know, my daughter, when she was in the third grade, she had a friend across the street who um, we kind of got to know. They didn't have a car, so they would kind of walk like in a Winnie the Pooh type line to school every morning, the kids. And we would just pull over and say, hey, we're going to the school too. pile in. And they kind of formed a friendship basically in the back seat of my truck. Uh, and, you know, they kind of became buddies. And then one day, you know, they were out of their house uh, in kind of alarming fashion. And so I saw them putting sort of the final elements in their car, like plants. You know, when you're taking the plants out, you're towards the end of the move. And I said to my kid, I said, uh, well, this looks like it. If you want, I'll walk you over there so you can say goodbye. And I did. I walked her over and my daughter knocked on the door and by chance her friend answered it. Not the parents, but her friend. And, uh, you know, my daughter, without being solicited in any way, just said not even a hello. She just goes, she kind of looked at me almost like to get approval or looked at me in a way that says like a three, a third grader says, here it goes. And she says, if you have nowhere to live, you can live at my house. And uh, the girl responded, Oh, that's, she said, that's very nice, but I'm going to, we're going to stay at my aunt's for a while. And, you know, I'll still see you at school. Well, they finished out the school year, then disappeared tragically. We never saw them after that. But Um, when I, after my daughter made that suggestion, I was walking her back and I'll never forget it. It's kind of like a Vietnam moment for me. I was holding her hand and she gets about halfway through the street between our houses and she just grabs her chest. She just belts out this. Ultimately, I'm going to be so lonely, you know, and she just died and I was holding her hand. So I, I picked her up and I carried her across the street, the West, the rest of the way and held on to her. And she asked, she said, you know, dad, you would have let him live with us. Right. And I said, of course, honey, we're not going to let somebody go on the street. We can always help out or make some kind of arrangement. But about an hour or two after that situation calmed down, she walked into my office and said, uh, dad, I know what I want to do for Christmas. I want to give houses to people for Christmas, third grader. Right. And I'm like, good luck with that. Let me know how that works out for you. No, (laughs) I said, um, well, we can't do that, but we, we can probably give Christmas to people who don't have houses. And she goes, yeah, that's what we'll do. And I said, you know, I went to a breakfast with Santa every year as a kid. Uh, it was for the May companies. It wasn't for charity, but it was kind of a neat deal. When you're, you know, you're five, six, seven, eight, you meet the big man, you get a coloring book, you get breakfast and you're kind of embraced by the Christmas spirit. There was a sense of magic to it. And I said, what if we did something like that, like a full throttle version of that uh, for the children of social services or children anywhere who may need it? And she says, yeah. So I run up by my wife, who, of course, is 100 percent charitable and was way ahead of us on getting it done. And then we decided to go into restaurant after restaurant after restaurant, seeing if they would help us host it. And every restaurant in my neighborhood, I mean, every restaurant said no, except one. It's like a North Pole ski lodge and it's like inhabited by, you know, it's got a high end clientele. Uh, And I walk in and I go, they're never going to do it. But here it goes. Can I see the manager? The manager walks up and said, I'm Ethan. I want to see about doing a a, a Christmas brunch event for children, you know, in need. I give him the speech and he kind of looks at me and he goes, well, you know, it sounds like the kind of thing the owner would want to do. So I'll I'll run it by him and he'll call you next week. And then that Sunday, I knew the owner of the restaurant worked brunch and I go, I got to go in there. He needs to hear this from me, not from a manager or an employee. He needs to hear what I want to do. And why? So I zip in there for Thanksgiving. I ask for him. He comes to the table. His name's Greg Amsler. And I go, hey, I'm Ethan from Combat Radio. And he goes, and he looks at me, and goes, oh, right, right. Yeah. What is it you want to do? And I go, I want to do a thing, a Christmas brunch for children in need from social services. And I want to do presents and bring Santa and bring in some of our celebrity contacts. And I want to do some entertainment. And I'm like stacking it up. And I realize I'm sounding more insane as I build sort of the, you know, I'm like that guy, like the Walt Disney and we need a monorail and then a mountain from Switzerland, you know, and you're, and, and he's kind of like taking it all in listening to me and I, I can't really get a read on him. And then I finally say, okay, and that's it. And that's what I want to do. 
And there's like this moment of silence where I'm expecting the no, or it's going to cost $30,000. Instead, he kind of looks away and goes, you know, that sounds like something we would want to be a part of. I swear Christmas music started up in my head when he said that. Like I could hear like the bells of St. Mary. He said, yeah, consider it a go. Let us know what you need. We'll circle back next week on the logistics and we'll get it handled for you. And if you would not believe that it was that easy with him in the one place I swore would not do it. And that was now 11 Christmases ago. And each year the event's gotten bigger and bigger, more families, children from the shelter for domestic violence who had escaped in the night. It's crazy. Who gets to come and, and when they get there, what do they experience? Okay, so it's actually kind of a Polar Express experience, which is quite nice and actually due to my wife. What it is, is we went to the shelters most in need. And we went to a series of shelters all across LA from Watts to Canoga Park. A lot of them are here in the Santa Clarita area. And we went to all the shelters and mostly the shelters that were really underfunded. Internally, the social workers kind of work it from an angle of who is suffering the most. And then the ones that we can't come down, we generally throughout the month of December go to them with meals, presents, and characters. That's kind of how it works. We send buses for them. The buses arrive. Typically, they are met by an actor who is the conductor from the Polar Express who gives them all a ticket to get in. He does the whole deal. He punches it. And then they line up. And, you know, and actually, I'm, I'm, I'm shooken up because I thought of a story in our first year real quick when, when we had done this and we, uh, we were setting up and it was just in the dark hours of the morning. And I just wasn't sure if anyone was going to come. I mean, I'm back getting coffee and I'm wondering that same thing. I'm like, I wonder if any kids are going to want to come to this now that we've done it. And we have like a C-3PO and stormtroopers walking around and a Darth Vader. And all of a sudden, <laughs> all of a sudden, uh, a character, a Star Wars character pops around and finds me in the kitchen and goes at the coffee maker goes, hey, Ethan, I think you're going to want to see this. And I kind of took it like something was wrong. So I go, oh, no. And I put my coffee down. And in the front of the restaurant are a bunch of bay windows that look inside. <laughs> And I'll never forget, like, walking out there that first year and seeing hundreds of kids with their faces, like, up against the glass, like we were a toy store. Like, you have that moment where you go, this worked. Oh, my God, it's on. Like, we did it. Like, they're here. How does gratitude inform this desire that you have, this drive you have uh, to help other people? Oh, well, I'm thankful for a lot, particularly now since I've done this event. Like, I'm thankful for the little things. I'm thankful for to be able to have a roof over my head and not live. You know, I've met kids who live in uh, over un, under overpasses. And I've met kids who live in cardboard boxes. And I've met kids from the very first year who've come back to volunteer as young adults uh, who hung on because of the event. And, uh, you know, so. I think what it is, is you, you know, it's like a heroin addiction or what I have been sort of made to understand a heroin addiction is like you do it once you, you help somebody once. And then you go, that was fantastic. We can help 10 people. And then it goes to hundred people. And then you go, how many people can we get in here this year? And then what are we going to do after the event? What shelters are we going to go to? And they're just some, there is some sort of level of horsepower in the giving that triggers it. If you give to somebody who sincerely needs it, you will walk away with some sort of internal trigger that goes off and starts a nuclear blast of emotions. For me, it's been like this huge, like life changing experience because, you know, I was considered somebody with a little bit of edge, but my kid, you know, had this sense of like a bright light sense of goodness. And she said she wanted to do this. And just because I didn't want to embarrass her or be like the failure in front of her, I'm like, okay, we'll try it. Now I look back and I go, this may be the best thing I've ever done in my life. Due to the pandemic, Ethan has been unable to host the in-person fundraiser for Combat Radio's Christmas for Social Services for the past two years. He has set up a GoFundMe page that's active now. I hope you'll consider making a donation to keep the Christmas spirit alive for those who are at risk of losing it. The link's on our website at livefromtheloungepodcast.com. To my eyes and you see the crazy gypsy in my soul. 
It always comes as a surprise When I feel my withered roots begin to grow Well, I never had a place that I could call my very own That's all right, my love, cause you're my Touch my weary head And you tell me everything will be alright You say, use my body for your bed And my love will keep you warm throughout the night Well, I'll never be a stranger And I'll never be alone Wherever we're together, that's my Farley invented two swear words before she was five years old. Fuckin' fuckatash and aw shitty shucks. Not bad for a toddler. She's one of the smartest and funniest people I know, and also one of the strongest. She sings like an angel and curses like a sailor. I admire her bravery in the face of health challenges, her attraction at 13 to the works of Tennessee Williams, her innate ability to structure a compelling story, and the voice that's growing stronger by the day. Not just her singing voice, but also the voice that's speaking truth with precision and passion. I'm lucky to be related to Ruby, and I give thanks every day that we've been put together to share this journey on the road of life. John Ballinger is someone I really look up to. Not only is he a brilliant musician and multi-instrumentalist, a great singer and arranger of nearly 30 of the songs you've heard on the lounge for the last year, he's also a profound writer and a tireless advocate for his wife, Uma Nithipalan. You heard a bit of their story back in February. And if you'd like to keep up with John and Uma, John has started a Facebook page called Uma's Story, where he chronicles the state of their adventures and the history of their extraordinary relationship. John is also someone I'm lucky to have known up close. We shared a very small room in an apartment in Queens for a few weeks while we were developing a musical together. It was a hectic time, and while John was furiously arranging, teaching, and conducting all of the music, he was also managing Uma's care at a treatment facility in the South. We both had our moments where we snapped a little bit under pressure, but we never let that stop us from sharing a bottle of wine and a lot of laughter together when the work was done. I'm grateful for John's enormous talent, his extraordinary ears, his tireless work ethic, and his slightly bent sense of humor. Hey, welcome back. It's time for Dinner and a Movie. With Anne. 
Once again, I'm here with my wife, Ann Kloss Farley. Yo, yo, yo. Happy Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving. Two of our favorite things, movies and food. Mm-hmm. And a little bit later, we're going to talk about a, a recipe uh, for a Thanksgiving breakfast and an afternoon uh, cocktail inspired by the movie that we're taking a look at today, which is Planes, Trains, Trains and, and Automobiles. Automobiles. <laughs> <laughs> this is just a great picture. I actually was fortunate enough in 1987 when this movie came out to see a test screening of Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. Oh, you didn't tell me that. Yeah. I saw it probably at the beginning of October, and I loved it so much that I couldn't wait until Thanksgiving weekend when I could take my whole family to enjoy this uh, astounding comedy. I don't think I saw it until, I'd say, four months later because my movie theater in my town was really behind. This movie features Steve Martin uh, and John Candy. Steve Martin plays the character of Neil Page, who is an uptight... um, Classic 80s advertising dude. And uh, he is just trying to get home for Thanksgiving. Right. It is such a simple premise. I want to get home for Thanksgiving. And then you just put obstacle after obstacle after obstacle uh, in their way. And that's where the comedy comes from. Well, we just learned today that John Hughes, this was a story that actually happened to him. If you've never had this experience in your life, good for you. <laughs> but I think most of us have. Yeah. <laughs> At one time or another, we've been stuck in an airport, um, stuck on a train, and certainly um, trying to get home for the holidays. You and I. Remember Y2K when we were coming back from the Grand Canyon and we got stuck? I was like six months pregnant. We got stuck on the freeway, too, for hours and hours and hours and hours. I think you peed into a big gulp, though. I did. I did. That's (laughs) what you do when you're stuck in the snow. (laughs) And that is the beauty of this film, is that it plays on all of those times that you've been stuck. For me, it's like we take for granted so much planes and trains and automobiles. And you're like, oh, my gosh, it's a piece of metal that moves like that's genius already (laughs) absolutely (laughs) true give it the patience it needs so steve martin plays neil page uptight executive and he ends up crossing paths with john candy uh who plays del griffith who is a shower curtain ring salesman (laughs) (laughs) with the best hair perm ever I love John Candy. He's There isn't anything he can't do that doesn't make me smile. But when I saw this movie and saw that he had a tight perm, I, it just cracked me up. It was just so funny. It's, it's a great funny. image. It it's is. a perfect image. And these are two comedians at the peak of their prowess. I mean, I was a huge Steve Martin fan um, going all the way back to Let's Get Small. And here's John Candy, who is so relaxed, so effortless, so sincere, and it plays so beautifully against the uptight Steve Martin character. And the two of them together, it's just a it's a it's a study in contrasts. It turns into the odd couple at certain points. You've got Del Griffith, who's this this innocent, open person, and you've got Steve Martin just being as aloof as Steve Martin does so well. But this is a movie with a lot of laughs and a, a whole lot of heart. Um, and again, John Hughes at the helm as the writer, producer, and director of this movie. It's a real unified John Hughes vision. It's a Thanksgiving movie because it's ultimately, at the end, he gives thanks to this person who showed him, I think, empathy. I don't want to blow the ending if you haven't seen the movie, but it it just really comes full circle to a a really deep, personal, um, like, who do you invite around your table? Del Griffith carries around this giant trunk with him. And all through the movie, you're wondering what is that, what is in that trunk and what's it all about? And when that is revealed, you do have that moment where you go, of course. Right. So it's a very satisfying movie in terms of the way the simple story pays off in a really exciting way. It's also a great family film. Mm -hmm. And and don't be fooled by the fact that it is an R-rated comedy. And they do that for swearing. 
specifically. Uh, one scene in particular, and the one with Edie McClurg, where he's at the rental counter and they drop 18 F-bombs <laughs> in 60 seconds. It is a classic comedy scene. And that's the reason it gets an R rating. So this is a movie that you can really enjoy <laughs> with your kids once they get to be 8, 9, 10. Um, has jokes for the kids. It has jokes for the adults. And then it has just a warm heart. It's just a great 90 minutes of fun. Yeah. So looking for something to eat alongside planes, trains, and automobiles, there actually is a great deleted scene that we found this morning yeah. um, where they're on the airplane eating airplane food. And if you head over to YouTube, uh, look for that deleted scene. It's actually quite funny. It is funny. But no, not airplane food. No. Not diner food. Not diner food. We thought thought about maybe doing a Salisbury steak. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which I, I kind of now I'm intrigued with like, how do you make a Salisbury steak? <laughs> Is that something we could do? Uh, but no, not Salisbury steak. No. No, not diner food. Nope. Uh, no, I'm not going to prescribe your Thanksgiving dinner. Uh, what I want to do is sort of talk about a tradition that came from my family and has translated into our family, mm -hmm. which is the morning of Thanksgiving, having pumpkin muffins. With mimosas. <laughs> and bacon. And bacon. Oh, yeah. Pile it on. So that smell, for me, is just the beginning of the Thanksgiving right. holiday. Right. And it's a very, very simple recipe, and you can doctor it up any way you want to. Go ahead and add nuts. Go ahead and add raisins, um, cranberries, uh, lots of different ways you can go with that. It's got all the good stuff in it. You got your nutmeg and you got your allspice and you got your cinnamon. Yeah, all my favorite things of the season. And you serve those warm with a pat of butter. We've done chocolate chips in it before. You could throw a chocolate chip in there. It's infinitely delicious. Infinitely delicious and infinitely modifiable. That's right. So have fun with the pumpkin muffins. And you'll be glad you did because it just makes the house smell so damn good all day long. And as the day goes on, another tradition, which also ties nicely into this movie, is um, for the afternoon at the cocktail before dinner, uh, maybe you would like to try the Manhattan. The Manhattan is, is a real simple drink. It's basically bourbon whiskey, uh, a little sweet vermouth, and just a shot of bitters. Right. Usually served with a maraschino cherry. Right, right. For, for a little looks. extra sweetness. And uh, I have many memories of uh, fishing the cherries out of my parents' finished Manhattans <laughs> on Thanksgiving afternoon. Trouble. Trouble. But now it's, um, it's part of our family tradition. And it's just a two-to-one mix. Two ounces of bourbon, pick your favorite, and uh, one ounce of vermouth. Uh, and again, you can adjust that if you like a little more whiskey flavored. If you like it a little sweeter, go the other direction. Um, and that's, again, on the rocks is the way we usually have it. Uh, or you can shake it up and pour it in a cocktail glass. Mm -hmm. So there you have it. Pumpkins and liquor. Pumpkins <laughs> and liquor. If that doesn't make you feel grateful. It's the holidays. For crying out loud. <laughs> So, yeah, gather the family around and enjoy uh, John Hughes's Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, starring the great Steve Martin, the great John Candy, uh, and bake up some pumpkin muffins to start your Thanksgiving off right. And as you're heading towards dinner, maybe a Manhattan cocktail. I'm grateful for you, Keith. I'm grateful for you, Anne. I'm glad we're going to be spending another Thanksgiving together. Here we go. And we're going to road trip it, it looks like. It looks like we're going to pile in the car. It'll be... Automobiles, automobiles, and automobiles. Yeah. <laughs> I would literally be nowhere without my family. Anne Kloss is my closest partner in this life. It was she who kicked me in the pants and got me started on this podcast, and it's she who has produced and coordinated every episode. She's also built our website, and she keeps it updated with all of the information that a lifestyle podcast requires. This doesn't happen without any of us, but it's Anne who's learned the most and traveled the furthest outside her comfort zone to make this endeavor possible. She's also a funny, silly, tireless partner in life. We made two kids together and somehow managed to juggle life and work to be present for them and for each other. I love her with all my heart and I respect her for the way she spreads real love everywhere she goes. 
Her love is not only tender and caring, but straightforward and true. She knows all too well that pain is an opportunity for growth, and she is unafraid of the painful truth that transforms lives. I'm grateful for all the ways my life has been transformed by being with her. Hold on to me as we go As we roll down this unfamiliar road Although this world is stringing us along Just know you're not alone Gonna make this place your home Settle down and love be clear Don't pay no mind to the demons They fill you with fear The trouble it might drag you down If you get lost you can always be Double Batch Daddy would like to dedicate this song to the memory of their family friend, Josh Beller. I met Tim Zender, a.k.a. Cal, at Emanuel Presbyterian Church in 1996. He was a greeter at the front door. He reminded me of one of my best friends from high school. Since then, he and his twin brother Tom, also known as Dutch, have become two of my best friends in my adult years. Tom's son was born just a week before my own son, and Tim's kids came shortly after. We've camped and vacationed together countless times, and we played a lot of music together over the years. They're both deeply talented musicians and songwriters, and they both approach life with an infectious enthusiasm and a deeply grounded love that's impossible not to get caught up in. I look forward to our many adventures in the future— and I'm thankful to have two such talented, goofy, and thoughtful men to walk through this life with.
Did you grow up saying a prayer at bedtime? Maybe you grew up with the scary one that made Metallica famous. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. Yikes. How do you even get to sleep after that? Uh, is there a real chance that I could die before I wake up again? Uh, where will the Lord take my soul if I do die? Now, wait a minute. Am I going to die tonight? What's the difference between sleep and death? That's a lot for a four-year-old to handle. I grew up with a bedtime prayer. I prayed it with my parents every night. It goes like this. Thank you for this day so fair. Thank you for my parents' care. Thank you for friends and food. Thank you, God, for all your love. This was followed by a rapid-fire listing of my beloved family members and pets. Thank you for Mom, Dad, Jeff and Gail, Rusty, Frisky, God, and Jesus. Amen. Then a kiss from Mom or an elaborate secret handshake from my father. And it was off to dreamland. I'm not sure why the creator of the prayer decided it was okay to rhyme the first two lines and not the second two, but let's overlook that in favor of celebrating the fact that taking a moment at the end of the day to express a little gratitude is not a bad practice. And the structure of this little verse is practically perfect. In it, we give thanks for another day on the planet, for family, for friends, for the food that sustains us, and the love that surrounds us. It's a nice way to end each day, giving thanks. It's no surprise, then, that at the end of the year, we have a celebration to give thanks for everything that's happened in the past 12 months. The year, after all, follows the same pattern that each day does. It starts in darkness. It grows warmer and brighter until it gets to the middle when it's as bright as it can possibly be. Then the light starts to wane and the weather cools until we slip into a period of darkness. And just when it's as dark and cold as it's going to get, the light starts to warm the horizon, and a new day breaks. November comes just after the sunset of the year. It's dark out. It's time to settle down and get ready to dream. But before we do, it's right to take a moment to reflect and to give thanks for all that's come before. If you've followed this podcast all year, you'll remember that we started out in darkness and therefore resisted the urge to throw ourselves into New Year's resolutions that only set us up to fail. We took the time to start smart. Instead of rushing headlong into action, we paused to dream up and make plans for the year ahead. In February, we held close to those who love us. We took a good, hard look at the habits that were holding us back, and we were brave enough to let them pass away so that we could march into spring unencumbered by thoughts and actions that no longer served us. We tended to our fragile growth in April and guarded ourselves from late frosts and unexpected storms so that we could blossom with the flowers of May. In June, the fragile blooms of our intentions transformed into the sturdy growth of action, and we found we didn't need to work so hard to make things happen anymore. We enjoyed the effortless growth of the summer months, all the while recognizing that the reaping was coming on, and as we headed into the harvest months of the fall, we found ourselves rested and ready for the hectic season of the gathering. And now, here we are, at the end of the year, looking back on all we've accomplished and giving thanks before we put the year to bed. Giving thanks is one tradition that we honor this time of year. The other is the tradition of going home. This brings me to the story of the central character of the first American Thanksgiving, a member of the Pawtuxet Nation named Squanto. Maybe you remember Squanto from your grade school Thanksgiving pageant. He's often credited with helping the Europeans survive their first year on this side of the Atlantic by teaching them how to farm and work the land. The pilgrims, it is said, honored Squanto by throwing a feast which became the first Thanksgiving. The End
Squanto's story is much more than that, though. He grew up as a member of the Pawtuxet people and was abducted in his youth and taken across the Atlantic by human traffickers and sold into slavery in Spain. He managed to escape and flee to England, where he spent years apprenticing to merchants and learning to speak English. In 1619, Squanto met Captain Thomas Dermer, who was about to set sail for the New World and who employed Squanto as an interpreter. He returned home to find that the Pawtuxet people had been nearly wiped out by diseases brought over by the Europeans, but his gifts as an interpreter and as a negotiator proved to be very valuable. Yes, he taught the Europeans how to grow corn and squash and how to fish the rivers and the oceans and how to avoid poisonous plants. But he also brokered a cooperation between the Europeans and the Wampanoag people that lasted for 50 years. 50 years. That's two generations of peace and cooperation. As we approach the 400th anniversary of this Thanksgiving feast, I'm loath to call it the first Thanksgiving because feasts of Thanksgiving at the end of the year go all the way back to the Egyptians. Leave it to our European ancestors to claim that the first one they ever had was the first one that ever happened. Maybe it's time to take a cue from Squanto of the Pawtuxet people and to seek out how we can be agents of reconciliation rather than retribution at our Thanksgiving tables. Going home, like giving thanks, is an exercise in looking back. You'll see your family face to face, the ones who helped make you who you are for better and for worse. Maybe you'll sleep in your childhood bedroom where your dreams and nightmares first took shape. You'll eat the same food you ate last year and all the years before alongside people with whom you've shared countless meals and laughter and tears and confrontation and celebration. You'll remember those who aren't there, I hope, and you'll engage with those who are. How do you imagine that's going to go? Are you taking any resentments home with you? unfinished business that shows no signs of resolution? Are you carrying anger in your suitcase alongside your toiletries? The author Frederick Beekner has something to say about this. Of the seven deadly sins, anger is probably the most fun. To lick your wounds, to smack your lips over grievances long past, to roll your tongue over the prospect of bitter confrontations still to come, to savor to the last toothsome morsel both the pain that you are given and the pain you are giving back. In many ways, it is a feast fit for a king. The chief drawback is that what you are wolfing down is yourself. The skeleton at the feast is you. Perhaps, instead of channeling our anger, we might honor the example of Squanto, the founder of the American Thanksgiving feast, who escaped from slavery and returned home only to find his people wiped out by disease brought about by his abductors, and who, instead of unleashing righteous anger and vengeance upon them, chose to transform the relationship between the first immigrants and the first peoples by sharing his knowledge openly, brokering peace, and honoring the tradition of expressing gratitude. It's quite a homecoming. My wish for you as we put this year to rest is inspired by my bedtime prayer. Give thanks for this day and this year. Give thanks for your family. Learn to forgive them if they've wronged you and look to be an agent of reconciliation if possible. If not, give thanks for the family you've chosen, the ones who love and support you for who you are, no matter what. Give thanks for friends and food. Give thanks for love and share it freely. From the bottom of my heart, I wish you safe travels going home and a happy 
Thanksgiving. And that's our lounge. This brings season one to a close. And as we lay the world down to sleep, I want you to know that I'm grateful that you've taken the time to lounge with us this year. I believe that if a tree falls in a forest and there's no one there to hear it, then it doesn't make a sound. The listener is the reason the sound exists. And your ears are the reason we exist. I offer a deep and profound thank you for spending a little time each month with these amazingly talented people that I'm proud to call my friends and partners. Here's the who did what. Our lounge is produced by Ann Kloss Farley. John Ballinger is our musical director. He arranged and performed our lounge theme, the underscore for the big question, and You're My Home, which was sung by Ruby Farley. Check out his album Blue Room on Spotify. Matt and Carol Almos wrote 90 Days, and Brendan Milburn arranged the music and performed the song of the same name. You heard Tracy Lee, Matthew Montgomery, Carol Olmos, and Steve Callahan as the Friendsgiving dinner guests. Double Batch Daddy performed Home. You heard Cal on vocals and bass, Dutch on vocals and guitar, and Bax on drums. You can see a rollicking collection of their live performances on YouTube. Special thanks to Ethan Dettenmeyer for joining us to talk about Combat Radio's Christmas for Social Services. I hope you can make a generous donation to his GoFundMe page, which we'll link to on the website. And be sure to catch Combat Radio wherever you get your internet radio fix. And I'm your host, Keith Farley, wishing you safe travels to wherever you find your home. We'll be back in a month or so with an all-new season of stories, songs, and conversations intuitively designed to help you to learn, to love, to lounge. <laughs> <laughs>